great to see you. If you've never met, my name is Jay. I'm part of the team here. Welcome. So glad you're here. We are getting close, you guys. You can feel it, right? You can feel Christmas just kind of on the horizon. Um, it's seriously, it's so good to be in the room with all of you and to sing those beautiful songs that remind us of why this season is so uh, important, why it's so powerful. Everybody joining us out in the tent and those of you watching online, we're so, so thrilled you are here. Uh, if you've been with us for a little while now, you know that during the season of Advent, you and I have been journeying through a series that we've been calling Adorning the Darkness. We've been exploring the Christmas stories as told in Matthew's Gospel, and we have been watching as God steps into dark stories with light. And this is surprising because when you and I, or when culture at large typically thinks about Christmas, we don't really think about darkness. We think about light. We think about it as a season of light. We assume that it is a season in which everything is merry and bright, right, as the song says. But in reality, what you and I also know very viscerally is that light only shines brightly against the backdrop of darkness. I told you all a few weeks ago when we started this series that uh, this year, my family, we were overachievers and we hung our Christmas lights before Thanksgiving, which I think breaks some sort of rule, but we did it anyways. And um, my kids could care less about the Christmas lights on our house until darkness comes, right? And so it is with life, so it is with Christ that sometimes it is the backdrop of darkness that is most necessary to help open our eyes to see just how brightly the light of the world shines. And that actually gives us immense hope because when we're really honest with ourselves, there is much darkness in our lives and there is certainly much darkness in our world. Today, we conclude our Advent journey. This coming week, I think on Friday, we will celebrate Christmas Eve together, but we conclude the Advent journey today. This is the last Sunday of Advent, this word that comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. It's the season on the Christian calendar where for thousands of years, 2,000 years, Christians have spent these four weeks leading up to Christmas um, waiting in expectation and in hope of Christmas morning. And we conclude our journey with what is arguably the darkest story in the first two chapters of Matthew, um, these Christmas texts. And to get there, what I want to do is um, just to illustrate sort of light entering darkness, I want to tell you the story of a 20th century American poet named Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Many of you know Longfellow. Here is a photo of him. Henry Longfellow was a 20th century American poet, and in 1861, he was already a well-known writer, really quite famous and well-esteemed. And in 1861, his wife, Frances, who was his beloved, she dies in an, a freak accident at home. In 1861, Henry Longfellow loses his wife, his beloved, Frances, and it throws him into this spiral of depression and grief. And the following year, in 1862, on Christmas Day, we actually have Longfellow's journal. He actually writes in his journal, Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. And so after the death of his beloved wife, Frances, Christmas especially becomes a very dark and difficult time for him. I think many of us who have experienced loss 
and are going through grief, we can probably relate to that feeling that the holidays actually amplify the pain and the loss. We'll talk more about that in a moment. The following March, about three months after he writes that in his journal on Christmas Day, 1862, in March of 1863, um, Henry Longfellow's young son, Charlie, who was 18 at the time, he enlists in the army, in the U.S. military, and this is at the height of the American Civil War. And he enlists in the military against the wishes of his father, Henry. And so Charlie enlists in the military. Henry is against this, and it throws Henry Longfellow into even deeper, darker depression. And then later, about uh, nine months later, in De on December 8th of 1863, Henry Longfellow's son, Charlie, is actually shot in battle. Now, the bullet grazes his, it misses his spine and his vital organs, and so he doesn't die, thankfully, but he is disabled, and Henry Longfellow, his father, has to go pick him up and bring him home to recover at, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which was their home. And this throws Henry Longfellow into even deeper, darker depression. And so over the course of just a couple of years, Henry Longfellow loses his beloved wife, Frances, in a freak home accident. His son enlists in the military against his wishes. And then his son is nearly killed in battle. And all the while, the American Civil War is raging on and Longfellow, the nation he loves, is literally being torn in two because of war. And so consistently, Longfellow is faced with darkness and despair, and it throws him further and further into the throes of depression. A couple of weeks after Longfellow had retrieved his son, Charlie, and brought him back home, it's Christmas morning, 1863. Charlie, uh, Henry Longfellow, again, is just in this dark, deep despair and depression, and he wakes up Christmas morning, 1863, and he wakes up to the sound of church bells ringing in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Because every Christmas at the time in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the churches would all ring their bells to mark that it was Christmas morning, to symbolize the coming of Christ, our King. And they would ring these bells to cut through the silence of those wintry mornings to remind the entire town it's Christmas. Christ has come. He's coming again. And something really unique happens to Henry Longfellow. In the midst of his depression and his darkness, um, Henry Longfellow hears the Christmas bells on the morning, Christmas morning of 1863, and something in him changes. The bells cut through the darkness and the despair with utmost clarity, and he hears in these Christmas bells hope. And he sits down with a pen and he begins to write a poem. And this poem becomes the poem Christmas Bells, which would eventually become the famous Christmas hymn, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. I want to read for you a few of the lines from Henry Longfellow's original poem, Christmas Bells. It says this, In despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. 
God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. After several years of darkness in his life, Henry Longfellow hears the church bells ring on Christmas morning and something in him changes. He experiences light against the backdrop of several years of darkness. Henry Longfellow experiences hope on the far side of the tragic loss of his wife and the near loss of his son and against the backdrop of the weariness of war. And Longfellow sees that light. He hears the bells with such clarity, not in spite of the darkness he has experienced, but because of it. This is why for several weeks now, you and I have been journeying through this series called Adorning the Darkness because of two reasons that are connected. One, it is undeniable there is darkness in our world and probably for most of us, some sort of darkness in our lives. But two, it is against the backdrop of darkness that light shines the most brightly. That's our hope. You need not fear the dark. His light has come and is coming again. Now, the serenity of the nativity scenes that we most often see on front yards these days, they're deceptive because the original Christmas story, as you and I have seen over the course of the last several weeks, was anything but serene. When you read Matthew chapters one and two, what you realize is that the original story of Christ coming to earth was not serene, it was dangerous, and it was volatile, and it was, it was subversive, and it was risky. And today, you and I arrive at what may be the darkest part of the first two chapters of Matthew. I just wanna forewarn you, it's, it's heavy, and it's difficult. And it's, in some ways, it's like quite graphic. Now, here's the thing. If you were here last Sunday, um, you, uh, you heard Steve teach about the Magi, right? The three wise men in Christian tradition. There aren't actually three of them, for sure. But, but the Magi, we talked about them. And one of the characters in that story was a character named King Herod. And what Steve told you last Sunday is that King Herod was an evil man. And, and he was power hungry. He was actually a puppet king at the time, considered the king of the Jews, but he was installed by the Roman Empire, which was the most powerful empire of the day. And so he is a puppet king that lives in extravagance in Jerusalem, and he sort of rules over the Israelite people who are all essentially ruled by the Roman Empire. And so Herod has some semblance of power. He lives a very uh, comfortable and even extravagant life, and he will do anything he needs to do to protect that power. And then this is the story we find ourselves in today. Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23. When they, the Magi, the three wise men, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child, that's Jesus, and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so he, Joseph, got up, took the child, Jesus, and his mother, Mary, during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled 
what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders, and this is where it gets really difficult, you guys. Herod gives orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old or under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And so Herod, this evil king, says, the the Magi have told me there's a new king born in Bethlehem. This happened within the last two years. So kill every boy in Bethlehem that's two or younger. I mean, this this is the Christmas story. Really dark. Verse 21. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 18. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And he said, get up, take the child, Jesus, and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. And so he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warmed in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he, Joseph, went and lived in a town called Nazareth, and so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, this is bleak. I mean, Jesus and his family are on the run from an evil man with the power to do evil things. And Herod, this evil man, orders the greatest evil you can imagine, the death of boys to and under. This is dark, but I want us, you and I, to step into the darkness for just a moment, to feel its weight, to remember that light shines brightest against the backdrop of darkness. I want us to imagine what it would have been like if you were a mother or a father at the time when this decree was levied by this evil king, Herod, because this is dark, but it is a part of the story. To help us do that, my friend Bree is going to come and share a spoken word piece from the perspective of what a parent might have been going through during this time. Silence, sweet silence, sweet, serene silence. The absence of sound allows stillness to surround me, enabling the expansion of my senses so I could savior every moment. So peaceful, my son, his sweet innocence on full display. I'm mesmerized by his beauty as his head rises and falls in unison with each breath my chest consumes, I recognize pieces of me woven into his features. My heart flutters and pauses in awe of him. So precious, my son, I gaze downward, captivated by his fight to keep his eyes open. I rock him gently while softly my lips hum him a lullaby until he surrenders to sleep. Silence. Moonlight sneaks through the sheer curtain, 
A breath of wind forces it to dance. My spine shivers as my intuition whispers, something is wrong. Suddenly, the night was empty, void of light. The darkness was so thick I could hardly breathe. The evil of night ambushed me. There was no way to escape its grasp. Silence is no longer serene. I hear faint screams, each one louder than the last. Sleep well, my son. I pray you lay undisturbed until this massive panic is diverged, but the screams become louder, closer to our home. My son wrestles within my arms. He begins to fuss. I hush, I hum, I sway him gently, but he's awakened by their shrieking. My door bursts open, revealing a stranger, a man dressed as a soldier demands I hand over my son. I try to run, but I am jolted backwards with a fistful of hair. He forces me to my ground, my son fidgeting and screaming. I feel his hot tears in my neck. King's orders, give me your son. My precious, innocent creation, I hold him as tightly as I can. No, take me instead. His screams evolve into wails as he is ripped from my arms like a doll made of rags. With all that I have, I chase after this man. But before I could get past the doorway, another soldier shoves me down and I'm screaming and pleading for my son to be returned into my arms. I hear my baby boy screaming at the top of each breath, waiting for me to save him, waiting for me to hum him his lullaby safely in my arms. I'm trying. Mommy's trying. Silence. No longer do I hear his cries piercing the night. Where is my son? What have you done with my son? King's orders, he explained. A report reached the palace that a king far greater than he was born, and he could not risk losing his throne. So we must lose our sons? Silence. My son has been killed at the will of our king. Bitterly, I weep as I cry out into the dark. Why? Why did my son have to die? My knees nearly shatter as they hit the ground while sobbing loudly into the pit of night, waiting for an answer or a sign from heaven, but the darkness must have devoured it too. So here I sit, and it is here I will wait hoping the sun will rise soon. Not easy. You don't typically see that story on front yards during Christmas. They don't make Christmas cards based on stories like that. But it is a part of the Christmas story. It is a part of the way in which God shines light into the darkness of our world. Does anything get darker than that? For me, as a father, father of two young children, it's hard to listen to. It's hard to read that story. I just want to take a moment also and acknowledge there are some of us in this room for whom a story like this, that we didn't make up, that is in the narrative, stories like this hit home in a uniquely painful way. There are those of us in the room or watching online or out in the tent who have experienced the loss of a child. If that is you, I just want to say to you, we grieve with you. 
God takes no joy, no pleasure in your loss or your pain. If you've been told something along the lines of, well, this is all a part of God's plan, let me tell you from my best understanding of Scripture and who God is, death is never a part of God's plan. Death is a byproduct of the fallen, sinful reality in which we live, but Christ has come in order to defeat death. And every time we experience death, every time we experience loss, particularly loss that is unexpected and shocking, God grieves with us. But he also doesn't leave us to languish in our pain. You see, we reckon with the darkness of the Christmas story and the darkness of stories like this and the darkness of our lives, not to spiral down a pit of despair, but rather to see how Christ meets us there in the darkness, to see that the Christmas story is about God himself coming down into the darkness, not to leave us there or to linger there with us, but to eventually and inevitably pull us up out of it. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, that in the Christian story, God comes down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still to the very roots of the nature he has created. He goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world up with him. We enter into the darkness of the Christmas story and we reckon with the darkness of our world and our lives today, not because we want to spiral into darkness and despair and depression, but because we believe Christ meets us in that darkness, not to leave us there, but to pull us up with him. See, Matthew, Jesus' biographer in the gospel according to Matthew, he is a brilliant storyteller, and he's very aware of the big overarching story of God that has been unfolding since the very beginning. Because here's the thing, an evil king ordering the death of young boys has happened before. This is not the first time. And Matthew tells this story in part to remind us that God has used dark situations and circumstances like this before to bring about good, and he will do it again. What do I mean? Some of us are familiar with the Moses story. Even if you didn't grow up going to church, maybe you watched that, that movie like Prince of Egypt, you know, in the 90s, right? It's that story. Okay, how does that story begin? We all know the story of Moses, this man with a beard, and he goes to Egypt, and he does some miracles, and then he rescues God's people out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom in the promised land. But how does that actual story begin? It begins when Moses is a baby. Let me read for you a part of that story. Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. Pharaoh, who is an evil king ruling over the empire called Egypt at the time, Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. So again, thousands of years before the birth of Jesus, we have an evil king who orders the death of young boys. This has happened before. Matthew knows this. 
from this great evil in Egypt, thousands of years before the birth of Christ, would come a child that God would use to eventually lead his people out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom in the promised land. And in part, Matthew tells this part, this dark part of the Jesus birth narrative, because he is reminding us God has done this before. God has entered into the darkest spaces and situations and circumstances you can imagine. And out of that darkness, God has brought forth a man who will lead people out of slavery into freedom. You know how this story ends. That's what Matthew's doing. And he's reminding us here that now just as Moses was born out of such dark circumstances and eventually God used him to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom, the promised land. Now Jesus is born out of such dark and difficult and painful circumstances and God will now move through Jesus to lead his his people out of slavery to sin and death and into freedom and eternal life forever. The same story is happening all over again, and it's a way of Matthew telling us, wink, wink, nod, nod, as dark and as difficult as this seems, you know how the story ends. The darkness does not win. Light has come. God is able to adorn the darkness with light in such a way that just when you think the story is over, God turns everything on its head. You realize it is in the darkest moments that the brightest light shines. It is in the impossible situations that our rescue finally comes. It is when despair and depression seems to have a stranglehold on us that God breathes freedom into our lives. This was true at the time of Moses. It was true at the birth of Jesus. And it is true in your life today. No matter how dark no matter how much despair you may feel, no matter how much you feel like the life is being choked out of you because of circumstances and situations that you have created or that are beyond your control, however dark your life may seem, there is no darkness into which God cannot shine his light. There is no depth out of which God cannot pull you up. There is no despair out of which God cannot heal you and make you whole. This story has happened before. And you know how the story ends. I mean, think about this word that Matthew, Jesus' biographer, think about the word he repeats over and over again in this really dark story. Did you catch it the first time we read the text? He repeats it three different times. Matthew says, some dark thing happened, and then what? So was fulfilled. Some other dark thing happens, and then so was fulfilled. And some other really dark, depressing, surprising thing happens, and then so was fulfilled. Do you notice that in the story? This is intentional. In the story, this peasant family, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, and his young mother, Mary, they, they run from this evil King Herod. They flee. This peasant family flees to Egypt, fearing for the life of their son. And then what do we, what do we read? 
So was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is Matthew's way of saying, yeah, it seems like Jesus and his family are on the run. It seems like Jesus and his family are the underdogs here, right? But God is writing a bigger story. Maybe this is you. Maybe you are living on the run. Maybe you feel like there's all sorts of stuff chasing you. Maybe it's fear or shame or guilt or anxiety or uncertainty. Maybe you feel frantic because you feel unsettled. Maybe you feel like you're running and running but never arriving. Maybe there is some darkness or despair that feels like it is hovering over you, chasing you and hunting you down. And if that is you, God is writing a bigger story. He is adorning your darkness in ways that you may not even realize. In the story, there is weeping and great mourning at the death of these sons, as there should be. I mean, it is tragic, but then what do we read? What was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel was a matriarch of the Jewish people, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. But all of that, what does it do? It fulfills a particular prophecy. Maybe this is you. Maybe you are wrestling with grief or with loss, or with pain, or some tragedy in your life. I said it earlier, and I need to say it again. This does not mean that God intended that loss, that God orchestrated the grief. Death and death of any kind, I am certain of this, is never God's plan. But because of sin, death is a reality we all face, whether soon or far, far later. It's not a part of God's plan, and God will not leave it that way. But while we live in the midst of the brokenness of our fallen world, until Christ returns, here is what I do know. God does not shy away from our grief, our pain, our loss, and our tragedy. Maybe the holidays are an especially difficult season for you, especially this year. Maybe this past year, you lost a loved one, a parent or a grandparent or a child or a friend or a coworker or a neighbor. Or maybe you've lost a dream or maybe you've lost hope or maybe you've lost motivation. You maybe are grieving the loss of something or someone and the holidays amplify the pain. If that is you, God is writing a bigger story than you can imagine. God is in the business of entering grief and pain and loss. He doesn't run from it, he runs to it. And so if you are in pain, you don't need to speed up the healing process. You can linger in your pain, but no, you do not linger alone. God enters those places with you. And he can shine light into that darkness. It may not feel like light right away, but it is light nonetheless. And then the story tells us that even after Herod dies, Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, is going to return his family to Israel. And yet, to Judea, there's a problem because he realizes in Jerusalem, Herod's son, who is also not the greatest guy, is ruling. And so out of fear of that, what does Joseph do? He actually goes to the most no-name, nondescript place you can imagine. This is really intentional, actually. 
Joseph goes to a place called Nazareth. Now, you and I, we think Nazareth is like an important place because we have 2,000 years of Christian church history that tells us Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was from Nazareth. And so you and I think like, oh, Nazareth, that's like big time, right? Here's what you need to know. At the time, in the ancient first century world, Nazareth was like one of the most no-name towns you could possibly imagine. Nazareth was like the first century ancient Near East version of like Los Banos. It was like a place, I, I, I'm so sorry if you are from Los Banos, I don't mean, I don't mean to offend, but it's true, you know? So uh, Los Banos is like the place you drive through on your way to more important places, like driving to LA, you drive through Los Banos. You know what I'm saying? And maybe you stop there for an ice cream at the Dairy Queen or whatever, but you don't like, nobody ever is like, hey, what do you want to do for spring break? Los Banos. Like, no one does that, right? No one does that. Okay. That's Nazareth. That's Nazareth. Doesn't mean it's a bad place. Just like it doesn't mean Los Banos is a bad place. It just means it's the least expected place that the king of the universe would come from. It's not Silicon Valley or San Francisco or L.A. or New York City. That's what you would expect. If God is sending the king of the universe, you would expect him to send him to Washington, D.C. or Paris or London or whatever, right? Like a big, major, metropolitan place where like the world converges. That is not what God does. God sends him to Nazareth. And yet, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. This is really interesting, but it's kind of, it, it's really fascinating. There's nowhere in the Old Testament where it actually says the Messiah will be a Nazarene. You know where this comes from? In Isaiah chapter 11, there is this uh, prophetic text, and it says that the Messiah, the, the king of the universe, when God sends him, he will be from the root of Jesse. Right? It means like from David's um, family line. We've talked about this before. Now, uh, from, from the root or the branch of Jesse, that's what it says. Okay, in the Hebrew, the word root or branch is the word nazer. And the word nazer, all the consonants of the word nazer, branch or root, it's the same exact consonants as the town Nazareth. And because of this, over the course of several hundred years, there became this rumor that when the Messiah would come from the Nazare or NZR or Nazareth, that there's this rumor that like the Messiah, the king of the universe might come from this no-name hodunk town called Nazareth. And people thought it was like actually quite funny at the time. And yet that's exactly what God does. He sends light into the darkest of moments from the most unlikeliest of places. So maybe you feel small or insignificant. Maybe you look at the reality of your actual life against the backdrop and you compare against the backdrop of the Instagram highlight life of other people. And you ask yourself the question, when will my real life actually look like everyone else's life? There's two things I want to say to you. One, those people are asking the same question about their real life. It's all a facade. And two, your real life, if it feels small, if it feels insignificant, 
If you feel unnoticed, you are in exactly the place where God most often does his best work. This is why the kingdom of God is often called the upside down kingdom. This is why Jesus himself says the last shall be first and the first shall be last. This is why he says things like blessed are the poor in spirit. What? It is because when we feel small, when we feel unseen, when we feel insignificant, when we feel like we are meeting, we are not meeting the standards of Silicon Valley achievement and success and um, accumulation of stuff, all of that, it is in those moments that God is most likely to enter in. He sends the king of the universe to Nazareth, after all. Not Jerusalem, not Rome, Nazareth. There is nothing, no anxiety, no shame, no guilt, no fear, no uncertainty, no loss, no grief, no tragedy, no feelings of smallness or insignificance or being unnoticed. There is nothing that can stop God from fulfilling what he has planned from the beginning, which is to shine light into dark places. God's plan cannot and will not be thwarted. God is undefeated. Not even death can defeat Jesus. What we see in Matthew 2, 13 to 23 is that the Christmas story is not pristine and nice and neat and clean. What we see is that the Christmas story is war. And war is violent. But that God wins. That not even death can defeat Jesus. In fact, C.S. Lewis, again, he puts it this way. Enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. You know, after the last service, I didn't have this in my notes, but somebody came up to me, and they said, you know, with tears in his eyes, this is just like after the 9.30 service this morning, with tears in his eyes, he had written me a note, and he said, Jay, thank you for the sermon and I just, um, there was one thing that came to mind for me as you were telling that story early on about Henry Longfellow. You know what happened to Longfellow? He heard the Christmas bells ringing and he became the Christmas bell. Like his life rang out into darkness that there is hope in the midst of our despair. I realized like, holy smokes, I hadn't even thought about that. But it makes all the sense in the world to me. This C.S. Lewis quote sum, summarizes it really well. The, one of the reasons why God shines a light into the darkness and despair of your life and mine is because he wants you and I to become light. One of the reasons why God rings out with clarity his hope in the midst of our despair is so that now our lives might ring out hope in the midst of the despair of the world. That you and I become the church bells that you and I trek out into unknown territory, into war-torn land and bring the peace that only God can bring. I wanna show you another photo. This is a man named Bruce Bairn's father. He was a famous 20th century British cartoonist. But before he was a famous British cartoonist, Bairn's father was actually a young soldier uh, in the British army during World War I. And on Christmas Eve, 1914, Barron's father found himself as a young soldier huddled up in the muck of his trench, 
shoulder to shoulder with his fellow British soldiers. And on the other side of this big, wide no man's land, covered with blood and bullets, were the German soldiers. And it was Christmas Eve, and they were taking a break from trying to kill each other. And around 10 p.m., Baron's father hears something from the other side. And he realizes the German soldiers were singing Christmas carols. And so Baron's father and his British soldiers, they start singing the same Christmas carols in English. And then Baron's father says this, suddenly we heard a confused shouting from the other side. We all stopped to listen and the shout came again. It was a German soldier shouting in heavily accented English, come over here. Baron's father and the British soldiers are cautious, obviously. But eventually, they keep singing, and eventually, the British soldiers and the German soldiers slowly and cautiously make their way up out of the trenches, and they meet on this blood-stained field that just a few hours earlier had been riddled with bullets as they try to murder each other. And they begin to play soccer and they share cigarettes and wine. They begin sharing photos of their families. They begin to tell jokes. And they spend all of Christmas Day together. The ceasefire continued into Christmas Day. as These enemies found themselves laughing and joking and singing and drinking wine, playing soccer on this blood-stained field. And Baron's father writes of that event. He says, was mind-blowing because here they were, the actual practical soldiers of the German army, and there was not an atom of hate on either side. This um, began happening throughout Europe on Christmas Day, 1914. And it became known as the Christmas Truce of 1914. These enemy soldiers who had once been trying to murder one another, laying down arms, and becoming human beings together. Fathers and sons, brothers. We hear the bells of Christmas morning, and then we become the bells. We see the light of Christmas shine into our darkness, and then we become the light for a dark world. This is the sort of upside-down, inside-out, subversive, surprising victory Christ has won for us and calls us to participate in. This is why the Christmas story is so illogical and paradoxical as enemy soldiers meeting as friends on a blood-stained field. In the darkest of places, God can bring light. In the most unlikeliest of scenarios, God can bring peace. Of course, I mean, think about the Christmas story. The God of the universe becomes not an earthly king, but a peasant boy. And that peasant boy grows up not in a major metropolitan city like Rome or Jerusalem. He grows up in a no-name town called Nazareth. And that peasant boy from the no-name town becomes a young man, and that young man doesn't become king of the universe by throttling and overthrowing the Roman Empire. He becomes the king of the universe by dying a criminal's death on a Roman cross. That's how God fulfills his plan to shine light into the darkness. And so if there is darkness in your life, 
if it feels like it is unlikely that God can actually bring good out of your darkness and your despair, then you are mistaken. The same God who fulfills his plan through such unlikely circumstances can fulfill his plan for your life and in your life as unlikely as your circumstances may be. Through all of your pain, your loss, your grief, your fear, your anxiety, your tragedy, even death himself, the king of the universe has come to wage war on death and to bring peace to our war-torn lives. And he does so that he might change you and through you, a changed person, he might change the world. He shines light into your darkness so that you might become light for a dark world. He rings the church bells on Christmas morning for you, cutting through your despair so that you might become the church bell for a world in despair that needs to hear hope. So if you have seen that light, if you have heard the bells, how might you become light? How might you ring out the truth that God has come and he's coming again to a world in need. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for who you are, for all you've done, and for coming to shine light into our darkness in the unique and incredible, shocking and surprising way that you did. And we pray that we might now take that light, carry it into the world that we inhabit in the midst of all the darkness and all the pain, all the despair, that we might become a church bell ringing in the midst of the pain. We love you and we thank you. Thank you that you've shown light into our darkness. You did it 2,000 years ago and that you continue it today in just as surprising and shocking and unexpected ways. We love you. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.